0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author, lawyer, and human rights activist Gregory J. Wallace. As assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York from 1979 to 1985, Gregory Wallace was a member of Abscam prosecution team which convicted six U.S. congressmen and a U.S. senator of bribery. Uh, Wallace discusses what a price we're paying for Trump's effort to get just one-tenth of the new barriers that he promised, that Trump promised. Wallace, a contributor to The Hill, writes about politics, immigration law, and foreign affairs. He's the author of four books, which have won several prestigious literary awards, including Ring, which was just named as a finalist for the 2018 National Jewish Book Awards. He's appeared on PBS, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and the Today Show. Welcome to our show, uh, nice to have you here, Gregory.
1: Oh, Catherine, thank you, and, and very nice to be on your show.
0: So today we're going to be talking about Mr. Trump and his border wall, which is in the news every day. Uh, maybe not today, uh, given all the other stuff that's happening. But uh, should we start out um, the price? We, we the price that we're, we've paid a price already for this ta- border wall. Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: Exactly the, the shutdown. Yeah, the terrible. shutdown.
0: The, yeah. So do we want to talk about that price, what happened when we had the shutdown, and just go through that briefly? I mean, because a lot of stuff that happened because of the shutdown was was really serious in a very negative way.
1: Yeah, if you go back a little bit, this all began as a campaign promise. And it was really a campaign promise that a lot of people, including myself, viewed as designed to just stoke fears. Fears of the others coming across the border. And it was easy to to articulate. A wall. It has a superficial appeal. Walls do keep things out and so on. And we're going to keep out the other. And and then for the first year or so of his administration, not very much happened. Some money was appropriated a year ago that would have perhaps constructed a couple of dozen miles of new fences on a roughly two thousand mile border, and then a few months ago, somehow he or his staff or his base supporters, particularly on Fox, woke up and realized, "Hey, we're not getting a wall built," and that's what precipitated the co- the confrontation with Congress over funding the border, sh- the, the, the the government shutdown. The terrible price that eight hundred thousand federal employees paid, uh, and uh, and the near um, you know breakdown of the air transportation system, and and finally he was forced down. I think Nancy Pelosi gets a lot of credit. He was forced to give in and accept a a deal that would have funded perhaps in addition to the few dozen miles of new fences another that he already had available in funding uh, for another perhaps 55 miles. And that was a defeat. And so where, where does that take us? It takes us to potentially a, a huge constitutional, uh, not so much a crisis, but a, a constitutional confrontation likely to play out in the courts over whether he can use his emergency powers to uh, to grab money that are already that's already allocated to other purposes and use it for a wall and I think it's it's quintessentially a a political issue, a political confrontation between Congress and the president but in in our country uh, almost all political questions end up in the courts sooner or later it's a unique role that the judicial system, particularly the supreme court, play and We've we've got a long way to go, and how it's going to play out, I don't think anybody right now can really predict.
0: Gregory, can we talk about it also? We're obviously, it's a political issue, but it's a isn't there? What's the psychology behind it? I mean, you had a lot of experience over the years in politics, and a lot of it plays out in terms of what's going on in the psyche of each one of the players, like Trump, for instance, and Congress, and the the base, um, and the liberals. Where what, what why why the i guess the the push to to build this wall it's sort of it's taken on a life of its own with with the white house
1: well, I, I think you can look at the uh, at the Trump administration after two years in in two ways, and in in one way, they have only achieved what almost any other Republican presidential administration would have achieved. Almost any of the candidates he defeated in 2016 probably would have gotten and given given the, the makeup of their control of congress until uh, till this year they would have gotten through a conservative supreme court appointment they would have gotten through a tax cut uh... they might have um... perhaps uh... implemented restrictions on on immigration but i think they would have been more modest restrictions so When Donald Trump talks about his achievements, what does he really have to talk about that he can say he made uniquely possible? And and I think the border wall is really his unique signature marketing pitch to his base, his core supporters, his 40 or 43 percent, depending on the polls, who seem to stick with him regardless. And going into the 2020 election without a border wall would have been very, very damaging. And, and witness, witness the, the grief he was taking from uh, his more outspoken um, talk show uh, supporters on Fox and Fox and Friends and Anne Coulter and so on, who really lambasted him uh, a few months ago over the failure to get funding for a border wall. And that galvanized him, because he, I think he saw, he saw his support, which, is, which has been there regardless uh, of all the, uh, the grotesqueries that he's engaged in. He, I think he concluded that without the wall, he was in danger of losing at least some of his core support. And in a general election, that would be devastating. So I think well, that's, that's his psychology. That's
0: his psychology. What's the psychology of, of his base? Do they, the the, the thir, let's say 30% who support him in this concrete border wall, I guess I'm, I don't know if he's changed that. It's not necessarily going to be concrete. <laughs> Steel, concrete. Steel, concrete, fence. I mean, they yeah. changed the wording. But what's the psych Do they understand what the wall is all about or what the purpose of the wall is or what the nature of the border is? Um, yeah.
1: Well, I I think he has appealed to fear, but the fears are there, and and it's not a fear that perhaps you and I share, and I think it's important that we try to understand their psychology, and I suspect that Ph.D. uh, uh, theses will be devoted for the next several decades to understanding his core supporters. And I, I was struck by the fact that there have been studies that have shown that People are more willing to tolerate legal immigration if they feel secure. Secure both in their own lives, and I think it's focused a little bit more perhaps on economic security, but also if they feel secure about about the borders of their country. And I, I think it's an important... Point for everyone to focus on to appreciate that rightly or wrongly we may agree or disagree there has been some insecurity on the part of his base about demographic changes in the country um, border issues and he's inflamed them and I for one I'm not going to just simply dismiss them I'm not going to say they're simply the product of um, lack of information, or I won't say that it's, it's the product of, of racism. I think it's real, and I think it has to be addressed. And this is where I disagree with the Democrats. Um, the Democrats have taken a position, you know, and they're, they're somewhat forced to by Trump, saying, no, all, no way. And Nancy Pelosi said, it's immoral. I think that was a huge mistake. Uh, first, uh, under the Clinton administration, some six or seven hundred miles of border wall were completed on the Mexican US border, principally in urban areas where it actually can do some good. Second, I don't think you want to say absolutely that a wall is bad. I like to think of President Obama when he said, um, you know, I'm not against all wars, I'm just against dumb wars. Well, I'm not against all walls. I'm just against dumb walls. And to some extent, the, the compromise that was reached that reopened the government reflected a, 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 a sort of a, an acknowledgment of that principle by the Democrats because they did agree to fund 55 miles, not concrete. It was some kind of steel bollard. Fences. I'm not quite clear exactly what it means, but bollards are typically used to, to keep, uh, uh, you know, vehicle traffic from crossing. Uh, and, and I don't think they engage in an immoral act, and it may actually do some good because I do think that the key to keeping legal immigration part of the fabric of American life, and that's very important to me, uh, my mother as a four-year-old, came through Ellis Island and never forgot and always told me about the screams of the people, the wails of the people who were refused entry and sent back for one reason or another. But the key, I think, to keeping legal immigration in the mainstream of American life is to give people a sense of, of security about the borders and to stop illegal immigration. And I know that immigration activists tend to recoil at that thought, but look at President Obama, who became known as the, quote, deporter in chief, because he fairly aggressively, uh, through agencies, deported illegal aliens who had committed crimes. And I think he did that partly because of an obligation to enforce the law and partly because I think he was trying to create the conditions that might allow for a, a compromise, a more global compromise on, on immigration. And so I, I don't think we should see this as just, oh, the wall is terrible and it's just Donald Trump and so on, but try to look at this in terms of the interests of all the affected parties, even his core supporters.
0: Then perhaps as you're describing it, um, I, I'm going to ask you first, what do you think the role in of the press has been in sort of making this a very emotional kind of thing and an adversarial uh, uh, political issue between the White House and, and Congress, uh, rather than making it giving us more, the, the kind of information that we you and I have just been talking about that we need to inform people both sides what kind of wall what are we talking about what are the reasons for it uh yes and president obama was also was somebody he, i think he was in the process of of building whatever i don't as you just said i'm not sure what kind of a wall but a modern wall not a big concrete wall necessarily but a wall that has connected to Uh, surveillance uh, cameras and those kinds of things. We don't really have the information, and we don't seem to get that kind of information, at least on media, social media, television.
1: I I agree. It it took me a long time to find out just how much new fencing, call it fencing wall, whatever, had been built since Trump came into office, and the answer was none. They're just about to get started on that first few dozen miles that I mentioned, but it was not easy to find. Uh, and and there, there tends to be a, particularly in the opinion and editorial um, pages, uh, very little acknowledgement of the concerns of the other side, and that's, that's endemic in this in, in this country. That's the, the tribalism that we have descended into, where where we can't even see you know, anybody else's position if it's opposed to ours is illegitimate or worse and, and not to say, well, is there something to this concern? Is there a way to address it without sacrificing our core principles? And that's why these studies to me were, were so interesting. And so, yeah, I'd like to have it both ways. I would like to have uh, a secure border But not with a wall, and that's not the image we want of our country. The image we want is the Statue of Liberty. But with the modern technology that's available, where it makes sense to have more of a concentration of effort, you have it in areas where it isn't so important. You don't need to put something up or spend a lot of money. Uh, But at the same time, to return to the kind of open doors that made us a great country, uh, that allowed uh, you know, these tens of millions to come in when my mother did and, uh, and, and build America, which is what they did. And the immigrants who came from Europe uh, at various points of repression and oppression who immeasurably enriched our cultural and scientific life. We couldn't have built the atomic bomb without the refugees who came from, from Europe and and we would go on and on and and I would like to see that return to its its very important and cherished status I don't think we can get there unless we find a way to convince people that yes we have secure borders we're pursuing a humane a humane immigration enforcement policy and now we can now again resort to uh that open door or more of an open door policy.
0: Yeah. Nobody our politics, seems to be
1: talking in those terms.
2: terms.
1: No,
0: it, well, it's fear. It seems the the conversation is fear based rather than this kind of rational conversation. Um, just in light, with, in line with what you said, apparently in the United States, we tend to be building more and more walls. Like gated communities are be, are more popular than they ever were. There's been a, I I was reading this uh, study that had just been done by the American Housing Survey, I guess, uh, that people, and I guess predominantly in the Sun Belt, but in other areas of the country, were building more and more walls around ourselves with this, I guess, of this sort of keeping people out and keeping other people in and the us and them mentality, um, which I wasn't aware of. And so it kind of fits into. I guess the, the the Trump, you know, the way he's trying to get this concrete wall built, that kind of psyche um, yeah. fits into what's happening now.
1: Even though crime, uh, violent crime in particular, has, has, has dropped generally yeah. around the country, I, I think that backs you into the to the issue of uh, of income inequality, and and not just income, but the separation that's taking place in various ways between upper income and middle or lower income people, and those are very loose categories, but someone once pointed out that 40, 50 years ago, when you went to a baseball game, there were only like two or three tiers of, of seats, and the bleachers in particular, you know, were, were cheap seats, and a lot of people who had real means sat next to people who didn't have real means, or perhaps in the next expensive tier. And and there was much more, you know, intermingling of groups from different economic levels, and and now you've got the skyboxes and the, the you know the valet served seats <laughs> with all the free food and candy and so on, and very few low income people ever get in there. And well, have you ever so boarded anyone-
0: a plane? And if you weren't sitting in business it, class, they go down the whole it, list till you're you know business class and. People who have so many miles, and but, and finally, if you're left standing, it's very embarrassing, <laughs> humiliating, right? Um, you're well, you best- wonder.
1: You wonder if there's any such thing as elite anymore. Yeah. But it's true. People, people who have money, um, the the well-to-do, and that includes people who, most people who went to uh, good colleges and so on, and and the things that their parents work for to get them, but the price you pay is you live in increasingly in a bubble. Most people don't have any contact with ordinary people except when they get out of their Uber car at the airport on their way to the business class lounge. That's the only time they, they have contact. I think it's terrible, and, and I'm not any better, frankly, than anyone else. I, I live in a, in a community that most people would regard as, as relatively exclusive from an income point of view. But I grew up, where I grew up, though, I was mixing with kids from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of economic levels. And so uh, I'm glad I had that experience. It really meant a lot to me. I felt like I understood perhaps them a little better, not so much in any deep social way, but more just kind of intuitively. But that seems to be disappearing.
0: So in other words, we're becoming more stratified based on education and income?
1: Yes. Yes, I think so. You want, you want the best you can get for your kids. Uh, if the public schools in your neighborhood are, are not up to par, you'll send them to private school. You'll try to get them to the best colleges. And, and you put them on a conveyor belt that sort of rides above uh, the rest of society. And it's great. It opens up all kinds of opportunities. And we need these highly educated, highly skilled, highly mobile uh, generation, just to keep the country uh, healthy and uh, in in the uh, in, in the condition that it's in of being a, a, a robust uh, place with ideas and developments and innovation and so on, but we're we're just we're just losing sight of uh, how other people are living. And that was a, so, wasn't that the great shock of the the twenty sixteen election. To find out that there were all these people out there who were really fed up with the status quo in both parties, were really angry, were willing to vote for a guy like Donald Trump, despite his, let's not mince words, his disgusting behavior. That was a shock, and we didn't know it. And it cries out to be understood.
0: Yeah. I, the word seething, I, I think of, I, there was just kind of seething under the surface, those emotions as you're talking about. No, and I wasn't aware of it. Well, for instance, you're talking about this stratification, and I just learned I have a <clears throat> grandson who lives in Brooklyn with his parents and preschool, and I'm talking about preschool for three and four year olds. Private schools cost anywhere. Yeah. 30, between $35,000 and $70,000 a year. We're talking about babies, toddlers. I mean, a little bit older than that, but I'm not and, sure what and the...
1: And who, who can blame him? If you, if you can afford it, you always want the best for your kids. But that has it, sort of sent us into this sluice gate, this channel that, that but based on
0: what involved. you're saying, maybe that's not the best for the kids. I grew up in a small town. And I now live in New York City, but I did. We had. I was exposed to all, all different kinds of kids, um, yeah. in yeah, in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds, education, those kinds of things. That is a real advantage, I think, for me. Um, I don't know that going to a school where all the parents have to pay seventy-five thousand dollars a year to send their kid. Maybe that's not the best place to be.
1: Well, I think you can find ways to make up for that lack of of contact. There are various school programs, the school bringing in, you know, with with scholarships, lower income kids, which a lot of them really do try to do. And of course, there are various ways when you are, you know, well past the preschool age, but into high school and college and afterwards, that uh, that people can find ways to to get outside of their bubble. After I graduate, graduated from college, I became a, a Vista volunteer. That was the domestic equivalent of the of the Peace Corps, Corps. and and I, I spent. Now, Don't laugh, Catherine, because I spent. I'm
0: already two laughing. Years,
1: Go ahead. Two no no two years. Where did I serve my do my Vista service? I spent two years in Williamsburg, but that was then <laughs> that Brooklyn. But that was then yes. a, a really hardcore slump. Now. It's kind of this upscale, aspirational, yuppie uh, mecca. But then it was a hardcore slum, and I saw aspects of, of life and how people live that I never would have been exposed to otherwise. So there are lots of opportunities. The problem is we don't really put a value on that. Something, indeed, you know, put some status on it. There's no real status, my sense. Uh, from having had that kind of experience, uh, I think there was status like the Peace Corps once, but that that seems to have to have disappeared.
0: Yeah, I, I was in the Peace Corps with my ex husband. I wasn't a volunteer, oh. but lived in Colombia. And you know, as you're describing Williamsburg, well, that was similar to this was in the uh, Andes in a small town called <laughs> Fusagasuga. But you know, the impact of that of not having medical. Uh, we had no doctor living there. If you got sick, you had to go three hours on a bus ride into Bogota. Uh, it gave me an appreciation. After all, I mean, it has continued to give me appreciation of what we have here in the United States. Or, you know, you couldn't drink the yeah. water, or the, you drank it, you got sick, you couldn't drink, the, eat the food, but you did. Um, yeah, I mean, that has a lasting impact, I think, in a very positive way.
1: But less so today, and that's where I think educators, families can do a better job of saying, you've got to get out in the world, you've got to see how other people live.
0: But getting back, we have have three minutes left to go full, you know, kind of full circle. I mean, I think that uh, Mr. Trump plays on these fears, uh, you know, the the differences, um, and it's very effective and very, I think, damaging to, first of all, getting anything done, but... um,
1: it's, yeah, his, I just, his governing principle is is divide, 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 divide.
0: So where do we go from? Which, where do you in three minutes um, mm-hmm. tell us what we need to do to uh,
1: head well, in a posi- I, I go in a positive the, direction? Yeah, the, the Democrats I, I thought last fall laid out a roadmap which was very uh, careful, thorough, professional. Uh, political strategizing and campaigning, and using moderate candidates to take back a third of the seats that the Democrats won were in districts that Trump had carried. Uh, I, honestly, I don't think we'll get there by promoting socialism. I really credit people like uh, you know Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Costa. Uh, uh, and 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 the others who are promoting big ideas but you're not going to win a national election with that i'm convinced no. of it
0: that's kind of the 180 from trump you need something yeah in between
1: exactly exactly oh, i still it think feels. it's a moderate country with a moderate center that will t- determine elections
0: well We'll see what happens. We have a lot of people well oh, there are a lot of people on the ticket so far. I get excited about it. I'm not going to tell you like it's <laughs> uh, have to see what happens. yeah, so okay, two minutes left. where can we uh, any suggestions for us for websites we can go to or things that we should be reading to give us more you know to sort of enhance the what we've been talking about today on the show?
1: Well, you uh, I mean in terms of of the most informative publications I that I read, but they're they're not inexpensive. The Economist, I think, is is a terrific uh, source of information. And what I really like about them is that they're they have a British perspective, and so you kind of stand back and see yourself, your country, as it were, through their eyes. And it always gives me some 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 balance. Uh, obviously, I, I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I watch NPR when I can as serious uh, sources of, of, of information. But, you know, these days you can find anything you want to by just by Googling it. And you'd be surprised when you, if you're interested in something like how many aliens, illegal immigrants, actually crossed the border yeah. in 2016. You can find that out. It's, the answer is around 60,000, down from 800,000 yeah. um, more or less <laughs> a, a decade earlier. Right and, and that, that's the kind you don't read off and, to, and that shows you why this isn't isn't a national emergency.
0: Exactly. We have we could we have the information we all have the information and we can access it. I hate uh yeah. have to end the interview but it really has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, um we've been talking to author, lawyer, human rights activist Gregory J. Wallace. Thanks so and we started out talking about Trump's border wall but we included a lot of other political issues. Thank you so
1: much. Catherine, thank you, it was terrific.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: News. 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 opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and Wall Street Journal writer Megan cox Gurdon, author of The Enchanted Hour, The Mir- Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Grounded in the latest neuroscience and behavior research is Megan cox Gurdon's conversation-changing look at how reading aloud makes adults, teens, and children smarter, happier, healthier, and more successful, and more closely attached, even as technology pulls in the other direction. A miraculous alchemy occurs when one person reads to another, transforming the simple stuff of a book, a voice, and a bit of time into complex and powerful fuel for the heart, brain, and imagination. She's an uh, SAS book critic and former foreign correspondent, and is featured in the Washington Examiner, Washington Post, National Review, and other publications. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Megan.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be with you.
0: It's an exciting topic. It's it's uh, it's uh, your book. I mean, it's I really haven't seen any other books out about this topic. I don't know. Perhaps you have, but this seem, your book well, seems really. They're, they're... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Sorry. Sorry to talk over you. I mean, there are there are one or two. There have been in the past. There's a great book called The Read Aloud Handbook, uh, which was published, uh, I think, in the late uh, early '80s. But um, but yes, I mean, I think that my book, not to plug it immediately, but it is very timely, uh, because what I've done here is I've put together uh, all the good that reading aloud does. All the good that we are discovering that it does, thanks to new discoveries, as you alluded to in in science and neuroscience and behavioral science, um, and also then talked about why this is important now, where we are in this. I call it the age of distraction. I think you could come up with other names for it, but essentially, we're in this you know hyper hyper distracted um, you know uh, time in which technology is interfering with our ability to pay attention to focus uh, on what we're doing and to be fully present with the people we love most. So so reading aloud is a kind of, I mean, literally an antidote, like a full-spectrum antibiotic to cure what technology is is causing us.
0: Yeah, because I think sometimes the focus is on, like, that we have these distractions, we have the internet, we're distracted, we're distracted, but then there's no sort of answer, well, what should we be doing? So that's what I think that's, your book really points that out and all of the advantages by reading aloud. And you talk about, it's particularly important starting with toddlers when their brains are, are, you know, growing at such a fast speed. I guess we learn more in the first five years of life than any other time, uh, in our life cycle. But, um, that it's really critical to read to your children and i you know i am a mother but a grandmother and i have my grandsons over here and i can you know it's very easy to take that ipad which they want and uh sit them in front of it and let them just read that on their or watch on their own um which isn't always bad but we need to do right the right we need to do the other and so what are the advantages let's talk specifically yeah, yeah. in the book
2: yeah yeah let me, let's let's talk about that because i mean you're absolutely right the temptation to you know buy yourself a bit of peace and quiet and the children seem happy when they're occupied uh, and you know and i don't i'm not here to shame or reproach anybody i think though if people understood how good reading aloud was in a multiplicity of ways for them and their children and uh, and the opportunity cost of putting the kids on the iPad instead. I think some people would, honestly, I think I have a line in the book of if, if everyone understood how valuable it was, we'd be, you know, if it were a pill, we'd want every child to have a prescription. Um, so here's, here's what it does. You mentioned that the child's brain grows at this phenomenal rate in the first five years. And that, of course, starts, it's starting before birth and then at birth. Immediately, the child is starting to, you know, slowly make sense of the world while the brain is growing. Uh, what we know about Reading aloud, uh, from some wonderful research that's been done in Cincinnati, is that when you when you when you read aloud to a small child, you have a couple of things that are going on. One is there is um, a physiological release and relaxation and reward for both parent and child. You know, if you sit with your grandchild or when you had you know young children, it, with a book, your stress hormones decrease and your bonding hormones increase. So right away, you know, there's a benefit to the relationship between the two of you. And then, as you, you know, open the book and you look at the pictures, and the child is looking at the pictures while you, I say you, let's use you for our example. Um, I'm the here, example. <laughs> our, you'll be the example, be my guinea pig. Um, yep. You know, while you're reading the words and maybe, you know, pausing now and then to draw the child's attention, like, oh, look, what's that little duck doing? Or who's hiding under the bucket or something? Those little impromptu exchanges all of that is producing an extraordinary engagement of the child's brain networks. You get the sort of five principal brain networks that deal with skill refinement, introspection, creativity, visual processing, memory, uh, language. All of these domains come to bear because it's, the experience is very, you know, it's very human. It takes place uh, in a very warm human context. And it's also, it takes place at a sort of human pace. It's not, you know, it's not the speed of the internet. It's not the the, the speed of a video or whatever.
0: So and I think is, another piece to that matter. I was noticing when I was reading to him, yeah. uh, this is a three-year-old, yeah. I was yeah. holding him. I was physically holding him and hugging him and, and I'm surrounding him and reading the book where if he is on the iPad, I don't tend to do that. He's sitting by himself wherever you add go you know um, connecting with the ipad or iphone whereas when i'm reading there, there's a whole physical aspect to that too which oh. i think was oh is, yeah oh and yeah. that's and that's very, very common. that's
2: very important i mean we are you know it's calming exactly right and the calming is not some sort of esoteric intellectual thing it's a real physical uh, physical consequence of that closeness and you know Children at young children, especially if your grandchild's age, that's a very important age. To they're learning about, they're learning to self-regulate. They're learning that other people have thoughts and emotions that are separate from their thoughts and emotions. There's a you know very complex psychological process as they as they mature and develop, and that physical proximity is immensely good for that. And so I just want to quickly go back to the brain science because there is um, there is a, a a comparison that is, I think, a little painful to contemplate if we're going to talk about the iPad versus the picture book. Uh, We know that the picture book experience lights up the brain. We know, although I will stipulate, neurologists say you're not supposed to use the phrase lighting up. It's not correct, but I'm a layman. I'll use that term. (laughs) Uh, When when that same three-year-old is looking at a, a video, you know, an animated thing, most of the brain networks are simply not engaged. The only one that seems really to be brought to bear so far as I understand it uh, is the visual sort of registering that there is a lot happening visually. But when things are jumping around on the screen, when the impulse to press the button is not a conscious but it's a sort of unconscious one, what's happening is that uh, the um, th- there's the processing of the shock and awe, but you, there's no time, you know, the visual, but there's no time for the child to reflect even in a very, you know, transient way on what he or she is seeing. It's just stuff that's happening and then it goes on. So that time, you know, is lost time. And that time, is, it's a shame to lose it when children are small because that's when they really need their brain engagement because all of the, you know, the, the interconnecting and synchronizing of those brain networks, that helps build the architecture for their brain, for their lives, for their imagination.
0: This is something that, and I think you point this out in the book, obviously. But what this isn't new. I mean, you're, you make a, I guess, a connection to what is it? The Greeks, classical Greeks? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, absolutely right. I mean, look, reading aloud. If you if you think of it this way, it really is a kind of it's a version of oral storytelling, right? It's it's the it's the voice presenting a story to the ear, and. You know, that's a very easy way for people to, to take in information and to take in uh, stories. And we know that oral storytelling uh, is, you know, it's been, re- it's been found in pretty much every culture ever, ever recorded. Uh, narrative itself is one of the human universals. So this is as old, you know, the idea of one person unfurling a story by speaking it into being, as it were, is as old as we are. Um, and, 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 you know, and we love stories. We love stories. We get them in all kinds of different ways. Uh, we get them online and we get them through our iPad. But, you know, by returning to this, as it were, kind of checking back in with this old way of telling stories, we also really kind of, we, we can, as it were, drink from this wellspring of, of pleasure and satisfaction and civilization that we've been enjoying for as long as we've been on this earth. So talk
0: to us about, specifically, when we talk about um, reading together, I mean, reading together maybe not just who, two people, but, you know, the whole, I mean, I think, wasn't the um, Native Americans telling stories, and, and and it's groups of people together, and one person telling a story, and there's a whole camaraderie, and, um, you know, that creates uh, closeness and empathy with, with each other. Um, this... I don't know, we don't seem to do that. There are book clubs and those kinds of things, but that's not exactly what you're talking yeah. about.
2: Yeah, no, no, you, you put it very well. That, that's exactly right. When, when we share a story together, I mean, there has been, there's some research that's been done at Princeton that suggests that when, uh, when, when a storyteller is delivering the story and people are listening to the story, they're actually, you know, we, let's say, are having actually the same experience of the story. There's a kind of synchronizing of the brains of storyteller and listener, which is a, or the brain activity, which is an, a remarkable idea. It's It suggests that there is this deeper kind of fabric of connection that we are knitting tighter and tighter when we, when we enjoy stories in this way. Um, you know, in the family context, one of the things I love about reading aloud, especially with a mixed group of people, you know, children of different ages, maybe both parents, if you can, you know, if you can swing it. You can get together. Um, is that you yeah yeah right you're you, you're physically in proximity with, with that warm reward that we talked about earlier um but you're also you're also partaking of a story at the same time at the same speed with the same ease of access, whether you are a good reader or a poor reader, whether you're you know very knowledgeable or not very knowledgeable you know stories have this 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 magical quality about them that even if even if we don't understand all the words, let's say we're young uh we still can get a lot of it, you know. We can get a lot of the story. We, we all something interesting, Catherine. We all of us uh, know more words than we would naturally use in our everyday speech, right? We can, we might recognize words from context uh, when we're reading, uh, and that and that that holds true as well for for children. So, you know, I've had the experience, and I relate this in the book of reading some, you know, pretty sophisticated books to. Reasonably young children, for instance, reading, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula to my 11 year old, who, by the way, loved it, could not get enough of it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of got some archaic language and things like that, but she was able to follow what, however much she was able to follow, it was enough to keep her completely gripped. And, um, so, so yes, so when we read in a group, uh, there's the ability to access complicated stories, Easily by everyone, and then you have that kind of that story in common. You have the the language in common. Um, there's also just to refer back to my book, um, an amazing case of a family that agreed to uh, to start reading aloud. They'd never done it before, and they agreed to give it a go for three months with their three children. And the two younger children were two little boys, and they're they're charming little things, but kind of barb barbarous, you know, wild. They didn't really know what to do with books. Um, At the end of the three months, the parents said they could not get over the change in particular in their boys. They were calmer, they were uh, more focused, and their vocabulary had quadrupled or you know quintupled in the time that they'd been reading. So, you know, it's all good. Basically, it's all good here. What about,
0: maybe using that family as an example, when you're reading, as you said, say three children and they're different ages, Um, after the story's over and after the kids are, you know, finished hearing the story, does it um, encourage the children to talk with one another about the book because the older one is going to get different things out of the book than, say, the younger ones, and they continue, I mean, encourages more dialogue amongst the kids.
2: Yeah, I you know I don't know about after the book I don't I don't think in all the long years that I've been reading to my five kids that I've seen that much the sort of immediately after a book what I have definitely observed uh, is first of all we will often we have often had conversations you know while we're reading we'll pause there'll be some concept that comes up or some idea and I'll realize that. Oh, maybe not everybody understood what you know what a dowry is or what a bank is. in fact, I had to look that one up myself, but um you know you might not everybody might not be quite getting what's happening, and we you know over the years we've had some really fruitful conversations um about about the the ideas and 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 characters and you know virtues and crimes and things that we've encountered in books and i but I have also seen that um that that the books that we've shared as a family are are kind of you know they're sort of they're very much built into our family understanding and and people will refer to different scenes in different books to uh you know to, to remind one another oh this reminds me of that scene in such and such um and there's a kind of deep recognition there that we've all been in that scene together i mean our our great foundational books well i mean they're if i if I'd known. Uh, how good it was for us all, I would have read, read even more, I think, and I would have read more nonfiction and more poetry. <laughs> but we read lots and lots. We read you know, Treasure Island many times and all the Little House books many times and the Narnia books many times and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's other books like Kidnapped many times. Um, and so these are the books that, that tend to be part of our, sort of, you know, they're part of Gurdon family lore. <laughs>
0: So, how do you get other families and, and parents and, and partners to be able to do that? Because there is the excuse, "We just don't have time." Uh, we're both working. I mean, you can go on and on with the kinds of excuses that people have. How do you help? I mean, besides obviously reading your book and and getting to understand what the advantages are for the children, for the family, for the teenagers, how do you get to? How do we engage families um, to to do this?
2: Yeah. So I, so I have two thoughts on that, Catherine. Uh, the first is, as I as I mentioned earlier, I I don't you know nobody likes to be scolded and nobody likes to be shamed and we all as parents you know wish we would do we could do more or that we were better you know we I mean who is who among us doesn't feel that sometimes at least. Um, so so I really encourage people you know to start small. I mean there was that heroic family and they did you know they gave it they they said they gave it half an hour to an hour. Every, almost every day for three months. They did it over the summer. That was their introduction. Now, that might be, that might feel like a huge commitment for another family. And so, what I've been encouraging people to do is just give it a go. Just start where you are. Start today. Start small. You know, just something from the newspaper or a poem after dinner or some little thing. And then try and do it at the same time again tomorrow and see if it doesn't as it so often does in my observation, if it doesn't start to become one of the real pleasures of the day, something people actually look forward to. And the time, you know, you know how it is you can sort of make time for things that you really want to do? You know, the time often does make itself available when, when people get a taste of, of how rewarding it can be. But here's the other thing I would like families to keep in mind. Uh, the busier you are as a parent... You know, the more constrained your time with children, the less time you have really to be giving yourself fully to them, the more valuable reading to them actually becomes. Because it is this, you know, it's a single experience, and yet at the same time, you are doing a vast number of positive things. You are, you know, building in a physiological way your relationship. You're helping your child learn to self-regulate. You yourself are getting the emotional rewards of being, you know, near each other. You are flooding them with language, which is an invaluable asset as they, you know, grow up and go into school and, uh, you know, go into life. You are helping them to develop a nice long attention span. That's something we only talked about briefly at the beginning. But, you know, inculcating a long attention span is is a priceless gift to give children. And so, again, when you read them and they're engaged in the story, they're, or, or just, you know, the pictures or just this enthralling, magical time with your parent, they're they're extending their, their attention span. They're getting the, they're, they're recognizing that reward comes from that. And the reward, you know, it's like this virtuous circle, that the more enthralled they are, the more they're focusing. The more they're focusing, the more enthralled they are. And this has... You know, I don't want to keep going on and on on this one point, but uh, there are some real consequences uh, that have been traced to attention span for children. Uh,
0: and because we only have a few minutes left, I want to kind of jump forward, I guess, in the life cycle because we do go full circle because you have a chapter on f- ner- from the nursery to the nursing home. So it's also, l- let's just spend a little time on that. What are you talking about when you say from the nursery to the nursing home? Um actually, why does reading aloud uh, never gets old, as you say?
2: Oh, I'm so, I'm so so glad that you asked that. This is I actually, in some ways, the dearest part of the whole argument to my heart now. Uh, you know, when we, 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 it's so easy to think of reading aloud as something that we do with little children. And in fact, it is, as you say, it's just, it's, it, is a, it is a rewarding activity and it's a beautiful way to connect with people all the way up the age scale. And, you know, especially with our elders, with our maybe elderly parents, elderly grandparents, it uh, reading together is a fantastic balm to the loneliness that so often strikes people in later life or develops slowly in later life. You know, people who live, elderly people who live alone or in institutions, you know, or nursing homes or hospitals or whatever, you know, often they don't get high quality adult exchanges, you know, especially if you're... You know, in living in a in a facility, most many of your exchanges with others will be sort of hierarchical or, or practical, procedural. You know, shall we, oh, Mrs. Zox, Shall we move you to this room? Kind of thing. Uh, when we bring a book and we read to someone in the hospital or you know, in a otherwise kind of detained in late in life, um, we give that person an opportunity to travel. You know, as it were, on the sound of our voice and the power of the book up and out of where they are into the, you know, into the sunny uplands of intellectual and, and, and emotional and aesthetic engagement where they're fully themselves again. And there, there have been remarkable stories, and I relate some of them in the book, of people who have been you know, kind of locked in by dementia and Alzheimer's uh, and who have had the experience of having the door kind of just fly open for a moment when they hear poetry from their childhood or a story that they had forgotten or that their own mother had read to them. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily, a door doesn't stay open, but people kind of come, come to themselves because it is such an unusual, rare and, and enriching experience. You
0: know, and there's a certain right like, theres a certain sensuality to that experience that people in nursing homes, having worked in nursing homes as a social worker, don't have. I mean, yeah. you, you don't think about this, but no one kisses them, no one hugs them—at yeah. least not on a daily yeah. basis—and um, so you're really kind of, you know, so, th- there's very little sensuality in one's life. And as you're describing, someone reading to you and engaging with you. Is one way of providing that?
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the voice is like a caress. I mean, of course, it can be like a cudgel too. I suppose if yeah. you <laughs> use it cruelly. But, but yeah. I mean, and this is this is why, you know, parents who cannot pick up their their premature babies from the hospital, you know, in the hospital because the babies are too fragile to be held, yet they can read to them and bathe the baby. In their voice and soothe it with their voice, and that is also true with people in the hospital for other reasons, you know, for late life reasons. Um, very, it's it's very rewarding um, and and uh, and really something to do. And I, I just want, if I have one moment left, I just want to say, you have one minute that, left. <laughs> I, literally one minute. Okay, so literally one, one minute. The yeah. That, okay, the, the, that a book is like a bridge in a way where you where party where, where we can meet with the people we love when life is difficult, even when it's easy. But when they're toddlers and it's wild, you can meet in a book. When they're teenagers and you don't have anything to talk about, you can meet in a book. And when people are late in life or facing illness or death, you can meet in a book because it's, it's a beautiful place to connect.
0: And we want to read your book, The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. We've been talking to Megan Cox Gurdon, the, one,
2: the author of the book. Just quickly, a website we can go to? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, it's, yeah. it's MeganCoxGurdon.com. That's spelled M-E-G-H-A-N-C-O-X-G-U-R-D-O-N.com.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Megan. Great talk. It was oh, really my pleasure. great talking to I love talking to you. to you. Thank you. Thank you.